Today is Wednesday, June the 7th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. A major scientific breakthrough. Scientists successfully transmit space-based solar power to Earth for the first time via microwave array for power transfer low orbit experiment with the acronym of MAPLE. Caltech's recent breakthrough has moved us closer to achieving the transformative potential of space-based solar power. The California Institute of Technology, that's Caltech, has big news for space-based power. Researchers at the university have reportedly beamed solar power from space to Earth without a single wire, and they say it's a first. Yes, indeed, it's a first. The experiment is part of Caltech's Space Solar Power Project, and the Institute announced a successful transmission via press releases yesterday. The researchers conducted the power transfer experiment using the microwave array for power transfer low orbit experiment, or MAPLE, which is a small prototype aboard the in-orbit space solar power demonstrator, that's the SSPD-1, that launched this past January. The researchers say that in a first, MAPLE's array of transmitters successfully beamed solar power collected in space using microwaves to a receiver on the rooftop of Gordon and Betty Moore's Laboratory of Engineering on Caltech's campus in Pasadena. Space Solar Power Project's co-director, Ali Hajimiri, in the press release said, Through the experiments we have run so far, we receive confirmation that MAPLE can transmit power successfully to receivers in space. We've also been able to program the array to direct its energy towards Earth, which we detected here at Caltech. We had, of course, tested it on Earth, but now we know that it can survive the trip to space and operate there. Well, how does wireless power transfer work? The SSPD-1, attached to a Vigoride space tug from Momentous Space, consists of two panels used to collect solar power. An array of transmitters within MAPLE sends that energy across a given distance using constructive and destructive interference, located about a foot away from its transmitter. MAPLE has two receivers that collect solar energy and convert it to DC electricity, which, during the experiment, was used to light up two LEDs inside MAPLE. The researchers were able to light up one LED at a time by shifting the transmissions between the receivers, demonstrating the accuracy of the array. MAPLE also has a window that can allow the transmitter to beam energy to a target outside the spacecraft, like Earth. Hajimiri said in a release, In the same way that the Internet democratized access to information, we hope that wireless energy transfer democratizes access to energy. 
No energy transmission infrastructure will be needed on the ground to receive this power. That means we can send energy to remote regions and areas devastated by war or natural disaster. The ability to wireless transmit solar power from space has huge implications for renewable energy, so much so that Japan plans to start building it by mid-2030s. A Japanese research team is also looking to pilot the technology in 2025 with a public-private partnership. As humanity's growing need for energy continues, a powerful solution like space-based solar power collection and transmission could be a huge step in the right direction. Space-based power collection would be able to operate 24 hours a day, whereas night pauses, ground-based solar power collection, and would be to able beam power to remote or disaster-stricken areas, assuming they have the requisite infrastructure. So when can we expect space-based solar power to be commercially available to recharge all those electric car vehicles? Probably when we have spent the money to replace all 145,000 gas fuel stations in the United States with EVs recharging stations. That might be a long time away. Microsoft will end support for Cortana on Windows later this year. As Microsoft builds out its suite of AI-powered tools, Cortana appears to have outlived its usefulness. Microsoft is ending support for Cortana in Windows. In a support page spotted by XDA developers and Windows Central, the company says it will no longer support Cortana in Windows as a standalone app starting later this year. Cortana's discontinuation on Windows doesn't come as much of a surprise. During its build conference in May, Microsoft announced its new Windows Copilot tool, which will live in your taskbar and use AI to help you do everything, and more, that Cortana does once it's widely released. That includes summarizing content, rewriting text, asking questions, adjusting your computer settings, and more. Microsoft first brought Cortana to Windows 10 in 2015, allowing you to set reminders, open applications, and ask questions using voice commands. Over the years, though, Microsoft has been gradually phasing Cortana out of the Windows experience. The digital assistant lost its prominent position on the user's taskbar with the release of Windows 11 and no longer appeared in the first boot experience. Microsoft also shut down Cortana app on iOS and Android in 2020 and ended support for Cortana in its Surface headphones and other devices. It's not clear when exactly Microsoft will remove Cortana from Windows, but it is clear that Microsoft's growing suite of AI tools, which also includes its Bing chatbot and Microsoft 365 Copilot, is taking first priority. Even though Cortana is going away in Windows, Microsoft says it will still be available in Outlook Mobile and Microsoft Teams Mobile, Teams Display, and Teams Room, but who knows for how long. AMD's EPYC ROM chip crashes after 1,044 days of uptime. Well, AMD's EPYC ROM chip is a server chip built around AMD's most advanced Zen 3 architecture. The chip crashing headline is 
really somewhat misleading. It was not a hardware problem. It was a software clock timer bug that brings second-gen EPYCs to a halt. AMD's latest processor revision guide states the EPYC 7002 ROM server chip can cause a core on the chip to hang after 1,044 days of uptime. By the way, that comes out to almost three years of time, after which you have to reset the server for the chip to run correctly. AMD says it will not fix the issue. For the average personal computer user, you turn off the machine at least once within a three-year period of time, which means you would have restarted the machine. So this is really not a great problem at all, and it is not a hardware problem. AMD's description of the issue, which impacts its second-gen EPYC processor, is that it stems from the core failing to exit the CC6 sleep state. But AMD says the timing of the failure could vary based on the reference clock that helps the chip keep track of time. And the workaround is simple. Either reboot before 1,044 days of uptime, which resets the CPU to restart your 1,044-day timer, or you can just disable the CC6 sleep state in your BIOS. Now, while this 2.93-year core crashing bug is interesting, the question is if it really matters at all. Sure, it matters, despite the fact that security updates and maintenance should be done in much, much shorter intervals. The most realistic scenario would simply be those that use the Linux Live patching feature to update without rebooting. That could certainly lead to the type of extended uptime that would trigger the bug. Also, servers for mission-critical applications often see extended uptime. While this bug is interesting, it isn't a showstopper for the majority of users, and errata in chips are definitely not unusual. Modern CPUs are the most complex devices constructed by mankind, and they almost always come to market with, well, various errata bugs discovered either during or after the chip reached their final shipping revision. So, what is the uptime record of a running computer without rebooting or restarting? Yeah, I think you might have guessed right. It's Voyager 2 spacecraft. Yeah, the one that was second to enter interstellar space. Voyager 2 was launched on August the 20th, 1977, and it has never been rebooted or restarted. Cord cutters are cutting back on streaming services. Cord cutter is picking up more steam as people ditch cable over OTT services or over-the-top services. With such a large variety of options, it is possible to sign up for dozens of streaming services to replace broadcast television contracts as just about everything is available on some platform. But what about the number of streaming services a household signs up for and for how long? Parks Associates is a marketing research firm that has built a name for itself as the leading authority for entertainment and media research. Recent reports from Park Associates found that 37% of households subscribe to OTT services through a cable provider. The turnover rate for OTT video services has been 47% for quite some time now. Jennifer Kent, who is a Parks Research Associate Vice President, said, There is so much talk about direct subscription has been losing ground to aggregation 
and bundling is becoming more important. Park Associates' findings shows that out of all U.S. households who subscribe to OTT services, most households subscribe to streaming platforms directly through the service apps or websites. Aggregate platforms take second place, followed by home services and telco bundles. Other entertainment services take up a significantly smaller percentage of users. The marketing research firm hosts a number of virtual events throughout the year dedicated to exploring share insights from industry leaders into market conditions. This provides an in-depth look at how trends are changing the entertainment field and how different platforms can stay in the running as a go-to service. Jennifer Kent said, We are excited to announce our in-person event and focus on new advertising models in our upcoming June virtual session. We encourage industry players to submit to speak and join us for these important conversations. Cable TV and cord cutting price will likely keep going up as investors stop pouring money into cord cutting and cable TV. Recently, during Dish's earnings call, they talked about how the investment markets have become closed recently. Now we are getting a report from S&P Global Market Intelligence that shows how investors are starting to stop the flood of free cash into cord-cutting services and traditional TV services. According to the S&P Global Market Intelligence report in 2019, there were 38 deals that brought in over $7.5 billion of investments into cord-cutting services. In 2022, there were 29 deals that invested $3.7 billion into cord-cutting. So far, though, in 2023, only three deals have been made to invest in cord-cutting. In the past, many streaming services have counted on investors to keep them afloat. Surprisingly, a large number of cord-cutting services have yet to turn a profit including large ones like Paramount Plus and Disney Plus. Both Paramount and Disney do expect to make a profit sometime in 2024 or 2025. With this change in funding, it has forced many cord-cutting services to speed up their plans to become profitable. This has resulted in some services cutting back on what they spend on and others raising their prices. We have seen even large companies like Paramount and Disney announce plans to cut back on new programming and lay off staff. Paramount recently cut 25% of its TV staff and consolidated its management over its networks. Already, Disney has said they expect to raise the price of Disney+. Plus. Netflix is cracking down on password sharing, and others have been reporting of other price hikes coming soon. The one good news for cord cutters is that they are not alone in facing price hikes. These same issues are affecting cable and satellite providers also. We have already seen many of them announce price hikes for 2023. Money has also driven a growing number of cable TV services to get out of TV. Recently, we learned that WOW, that's W-O-W, that is a uh, service, would join Frontier and others in either shutting down their TV service or stop selling it to new customers. This comes as many smaller cable companies are finding TV to just not be profitable. Other cable TV companies are raising prices and increasing fees in order to try and keep their services going. 
What has become clear in 2023 is that cable TV and cord-cutting services need to turn a profit. If they don't, they won't be around much longer. Comcast's new $20 a month streaming service with 40 live channels, Peacock Premium, and more is now available. If you can't beat them, join them. This past week, Comcast announced a new $20 a month streaming service that will include 40-plus channels from A&E, AMC, Hallmark, and select Warner Brothers Discovery channels. This service will also include Peacock Premium and a collection of free channels from its Zumo Play service. Now Comcast has launched the service and Comcast Internet customers can sign up for. The service is clearly targeting cord cutters who want some live TV offering but don't care about sports. This market so far has been dominated by Friendly TV, that's F-R-N-D-L-Y TV, and Philo TV, that's P-H-I-L-O TV. The one big catch with Comcast Now TV is you have to be a Comcast Xfinity internet customer to subscribe. Meaning that if they're not a franchise in your operating area, you can't subscribe to it. With content and connectivity at the core of our company, we are uniquely positioned to build and deliver streaming entertainment offerings unlike anything else but out there today. Comcast CEO Dave Watson said, Now TV is a great example of how our company brings together its collective video experiences, innovative technology, and superior broadband service to deliver some of the best entertainment into one affordable streaming bundle. Which really raises a question. Is Comcast giving up on cable TV? Has cord cutting finally won? Over the last few years, cable TV companies have started to give up on their TV services. Recently, we learned that WOW, that's W-O-W, cable TV would be shutting down its TV service. This has raised the question if larger cable TV services would soon leave traditional cable TV behind as smaller services have. Now Comcast may not be shutting down its service TV, but it does seem to be taking a step away from its efforts to protect its traditional TV service. This month, Comcast announced plans to launch a live TV streaming service for its internet customers that will cost just $20 a month, and it comes with Peacock. This is a huge move for Comcast, which has in the past been very careful not to undermine its cable TV packages. Now it seems to be moving to offer smaller streaming-only packages that are targeted at keeping as many cable TV customers as they can. Comcast seems far from shutting down its traditional TV service, but it finally seems to be looking at more options as cord cutting grows. In Comcast's first quarter of 2023 earnings report released recently, Comcast reported it lost 614,000 video customers. Wow, in one quarter they lost over half a million customers. That works out to 6,800 subscribers every day. Comcast saw traditional pay TV customers leave at a far faster rate in the first quarter of 2023 versus the fourth quarter of 2022 when they lost 440,000 video customers. 
To help offset these losses, Comcast also reported adding 355,000 wireless customers. It seems Comcast now wants to try and find ways to offer more packages that Americans want now. It has increasingly become clear what they don't want is the large traditional cable TV packages that Comcast had been offering. Instead, they want smaller and cheaper packages. Comcast seems to be hoping that this new Now TV service will fill that bill. This move may be small, but it marks a massive change in what has long been Comcast's effort to do all it can to protect its traditional cable TV packages. Back to basics, viewing television programs over the air. In the rush to sign up for cable TV and then video on demand services such as Amazon Prime Video, Disney Plus, and Netflix, you may have forgotten that you can still use an antenna to view TV. In fact, over-the-air TV reception has been getting better. 13 years ago, those TV signals changed from analog to digital, allowing for high-definition broadcasts. Now a new standard called next-generation TV is about to revolutionize our viewing experience. Great news if you're a cord cutter who has ditched cable. Here's what you need to know. Stations are still broadcasting in the original digital TV standard ATSC 1.0. Both 1.0 and 3.0 will coexist for several years. Next-gen TV, also called ATSC 3.0, can also deliver television to your phone or tablet or car if you have a device that can receive these signals. ATSC stands for Advanced Television Systems Committee, a Washington-based nonprofit organization that includes more than 100 international broadcast equipment and TV manufacturers, broadcasters, cable, motion picture, satellite, and semiconductor companies. It has been around since 1982. In the first version of ATSC standards in 1996, over-the-air TV and Internet were separate. The second version was allowed for some mixing of TV and Internet, but became outdated because it launched ATSC 2.0 that was folded into the third version in which broadcast TV becomes a part of the wireless Internet. About half of U.S. households now have ATSC 3.0 signals being broadcast to them, and that's supposed to increase to three-quarters of households by year-end, according to the ATSC. A new official ATSC 3.0 next-gen TV tuner is coming out this summer for less than $100. Pearl, P-E-A-R-L, TV, has announced that CTA is officially certifying a new ATSC 3.0 next-gen TV from ADTH and TOCA. This new tuner will allow you to connect to any Android or Linux platform and receive free over-the-air, next-gen TV with an antenna. You can also connect directly through HDMI to your TV. ATSC 3.0 next-gen TV offers the promise of 4K TV, better signal coverage, improved alerts, on-demand, and more all through your antenna, though to take advantage of this, you will need a new tuner. Well, 
There's one available for under $100. So what are the advantages of ATSC 3.0? The advantages that ATSC 3.0 brings is over-the-air ATSC 1.0 digital TV standard, which includes 4K resolution video with high-definition range and immersive audio formats like Dolby ATMOS, and around 60% of households in the United States are reached by at least one ATSC 3.0 broadcast TV station, which are now located in more than 70 markets. You don't need to be an internet subscriber for next-gen TV. You don't need to be a cable TV subscriber for next-gen TV. And the signal is free. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, technology, and the business place. And one of the things that I want to talk about is is our our real need to be prepared. And I'm going to draw I'm going to draw this out for you in in kind of a different approach than I normally do. And our need to be prepared means we need to practice things. We need to go through and we need to understand some of the threats that are coming at us. I want you to imagine you're, you're sailing on the vast ocean of technology. You're navigating digital waves with the business. And suddenly a storm brews on the horizon and it threatens to capsize the ship. So how do you keep your business afloat through this hurricane, through this tempest? And this all lies in annual IT drills. This all lies in practicing everything that you have been thinking about that could go wrong. This is something that people should be doing all of the time. We need to understand when we get to the end of the life of our fire extinguisher, it does not hurt to go on out and learn how to use that fire extinguisher. You know, you get the fire extinguisher. It's five years old. Go on out. Go on out into your driveway or whatever. Make sure you understand how to discharge that fire extinguisher. How do you check your your uh, your your Fire alarms in the house. You go on up and you hit that little button. You hold it for three seconds and all of a sudden, beep, 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 beep. And it goes crazy. We need to do this with everything, especially the more that our businesses rely upon the systems. And there's a number of reasons to do these on a regular basis. Yes, we document it all out. We go through in IT and we we have this all laid out. Okay, first we do this, then we do that, then we do this, then we do that. And we have it all stored away on nice little Word documents on the server. But if you can't get to them, you're going to discover that through a drill. But beyond that, so let's let's think about some of these different things. Some of the reasons to do these drills. First, the ever-changing seascape of personnel. Yes, we've constantly uh, got people going in and out. We've got new hires. We've got people who are fired. We've got promotions. We have the chance every year to familiarize the new and existing employees with IT systems and protocols and especially 
if we go with the approach of simulating real-life scenarios, it allows everybody to practice their roles and responsibilities to stress those, to poke at those, to see if everything is going to hold together when it really all turns to craziness. Then we have the treacherous waters of evolving technology. Technology is evolving at a crazy pace. Your servers, your servers may be three, four years old. Each of the systems that's connecting up to it may be three or four years old, but not the same three to four years of age. And this is just a generalization. Some of them are a couple of years old. Some stuff is brand new. And an annual drill gives us the chance to test all of the different things to make sure everything's going to be working. We identify the potential glitches or compatibility issues in what is a controlled environment before it becomes a full-blown disaster environment. Then we have those regulatory storms, which we must navigate. And the, the various regulatory requirements that, that exist out there. And you may have very few but most companies are not aware of how many they actually have. And you'd be surprised because many industries have requirements that are set in the industry by major government organizations that say, okay, if you, if, you're, if you have stock, you have to have this much in regards to reporting requirements. If you're in aerospace, you have to have this stuff in place. If you're in finance, you have to have this in place. Oil and gas, another whole thing. And all of this has to be tracked. It has to be followed. And somebody needs to oversee this. And you need to make sure this is all happening properly. See, the sharks of that digital ocean, the cyber attackers that are out there, they're, they're going to attack when you least expect it. And you should be expecting it very soon. These are getting really, really rough these days. So you need to understand how to go through without access to your computers and to restore services company-wide, and data to everybody without paying off the hackers. This is so very important. And there's one more element that I haven't even talked about, and that's sounding that foghorn, making sure everybody understands what's going on, because communication breakdowns will be, your communication abilities are going to be tested right there during your your drill, your fire drill, that 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 water drill and if you test them now you'll find the problems before this turns into an absolute crisis look annual it drills are the compass that guides all of us to safety these are important these will keep us out of trouble in the future just as you go on a cruise ship they have lifeboat drills this is no different. Trust me, it's well worth it. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. What are some common PayPal scams? Email scams. 
Certain scams happen on PayPal that are more common than other ones. Perhaps one of the most common one is email scams. Scammers love using email as their main form of communication, and typically, one will reach out to a victim and say that their PayPal account information has been compromised, and they must act immediately by clicking a bogus link. This is a common phishing tactic and can easily be avoided. Then there's reward scams. Another common scam used will offer a victim some kind of reward. Once again, the scammer will send an email saying that the victim has received a promotional offer and will ask them to log into their PayPal account. However, the link attached will lead to a fake website that looks like PayPal, and once you hand over your login information, the scammer will then have access to all your financial information stored on your account. Then you have shipping scams. Sellers are just as vulnerable to PayPal scams as buyers are, and shipping scams are especially common. If you're using PayPal as a payment method when selling an item on a site like eBay, for example, a scammer might ask you to use a different courier once they purchase the items and will then reroute the package to a different address. This allows the scammer to go back to the seller and claim they never received the package, leaving the seller no choice but to refund the package, leaving them with no item and no money. The prepaid shipping label scam is when a scammer will ask the seller to ship an item to them using their prepaid label to cover the shipping charges. This gives the scammer full control over where the package ends up, and the label could have a completely fake address on the label. If this is the case, PayPal cannot help the seller who got scammed because there can't be a record of where the package went. Do not click any suspicious links. As mentioned, phishing emails are some of the most common ways that a scammer will try to get you. If you receive an email from an unknown sender and it urges you to click a link or open an attachment, don't fall for it. Also, if the sender is claiming to be from PayPal, make sure you look up the email address to see if it's legit. And never wire money. Wiring money to someone you've never met is a big red flag that you're being scammed. When you are paying for something online, see if you can at least pay with a credit. That way your payment can be easily traced and your bank or credit card company can always help you get a refund. And always ship to the transaction details address. PayPal has a transaction details page whenever a purchase is made. If you are a seller and you have to ship an item to the buyer, make sure you're only sending it to the address that's listed on the transaction details page. This way, you're more in control of where the package will end up and PayPal will be able to assist you if the buyer is claiming to never have received it. Google makes its text-to-music AI public. Google recently released Music LM, a new experimental AI tool that can turn text descriptions into music. Available in the AI Test Kitchen app on the web, Android, or iOS, Music LM lets users type in a prompt like Sofa Jazz for a Dinner Party or create an industrial techno sound that is hypnotic and have the tool create several versions of the song. Users can specify instruments like electronic or classical, as well as the vibe, mood, or emotion they're aiming for. 
as they refined their Music LM-generated creations. When Google previewed Music LM in an academic paper in January, it said that it had no immediate plans to release it. The co-authors of the paper noted that many ethical challenges posed by a system like Music LM, including a tendency to incorporate copyrighted material from training data into the generated songs. But in the intervening months, Google says it's been working with musicians and hosting workshops to see how technology can empower the creative process. One of the outcomes? The versions of Music LM in AI Test Kitchen won't generate music with specific artists or vocals. Make of that what you will. It seems unlikely in any case that the broader challenges around generative music will be easily remedied. In 2020, Jay-Z's record label filed copyright strikes against a YouTube channel, Vocal Synthesis, for using AI to create Jay-Z's covers of songs like Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. After initially removing the videos, YouTube reinstated them, finding the takedown requests were incomplete. But deepfake music still stands on murky legal ground. Increasingly, homemade tracks that use generative AI to conjure familiar sounds that can be passed off as authentic, or at least close enough, have been going viral. Music labels have been quick to flag them to streaming partners, citing intellectual property concerns, and they've generally been victorious in contrast to the Jay-Z case. Spotify removed tens of thousands of AI-generated songs from startup Boomi over the past month following a complaint from Universal Music Group. A white paper authored by Eric Sunray, now a legal intern at the Music Publishers Association, argues that AI music generators like Music LM violate music copyright by creating tapestries of coherent audio from the works they ingest in training, thereby infringing the United States Copyright Act's reproduction right. Indeed, AI like Music LM's learns from existing music to produce similar effects as alluded to in the paper, a fact with which not all artists are comfortable. It might not be long before there's some clarity on the matter. Several lawsuits making their way through the courts will likely have a bearing on music-generating AI, including one pertaining to the rights of artists whose work is used to train AI systems without their knowledge or consent. Time will tell. What is the impact of work from home on office real estate? Well, researchers find that remote works affect even worse than expected. The $500 billion office real estate apocalypse, that's what they're calling it. Remote work has led to significant drops in lease revenue, occupancy, lease renewal rates, and markets rent in the office sector. The pandemic-spurred work-from-home era is decimating the office sector with rising vacancy rates and declining property values. And a set of researchers that previously estimated the effect of remote work on office property values have revised their assessment, seemingly suggesting things are worse off than they thought. In a paper published last year, researchers from New York University and Columbia University estimated a 28% decline in New York City office values 
by 2029, totaling to a $49 billion loss. And in their model, that equates to a $500 billion value destruction nationwide. The researchers are Pit Gupta, Varinda Mittal, and Stigen van Norenberg revised the estimate this month in the latest version of their paper titled Work from Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse. They now see a 44% decline in New York City office values by 2029 and the nationwide value destruction, as they put it, of $506 billion in just a three-year period from 2019 to 2022. In their paper, the authors argue that remote work has led to significant drops in lease revenue, occupancy, lease renewal rates, and market rents in the office sector within commercial real estate, all of which has affected cash flow at a time when the Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates. Although, interestingly enough, they found that lower quality office properties were more susceptible to the shocks listed above and were at a greater risk of becoming a stranded asset. Still, there is an underlying uncertainty in their model which they note, the future of remote work. In studying lease level data for more than 100 office markets in the United States, the authors found an 18.51% decrease in lease revenue between December 2019 and December 2020, just months following the start of the pandemic. The quantity of newly signed leases by square footage and rents of newly signed leases also fell in that same period. All the while, vacancy rates in several major markets are at record highs, the office wrote, pointing to New York City, which has an office vacancy rate of more than 20%, as of the first quarter of this year. Additionally, the authors said they found a direct connection between companies' remote work policies and reductions in their actual lease office space. The researchers wrote, The key takeaway from our analysis is that remote work is shaping up to massively disrupt the value of commercial office real estate in the short and medium term. Still, the effects are not uniform across the country or across properties. The authors found that higher quality buildings, that is to say, buildings with higher rents that were built more recently, appear to be faring better, which they claim is consistent with the notion that companies have to improve office quality for workers to want to come back. Additionally, they found that cities with greater work from home exposure are seeing larger declines in office demand, which is clearly shown in two examples. In looking at San Francisco and Charlotte, they found the former's office sector experienced greater declines, which is to be expected as San Francisco's office properties have been hit particularly hard with a shift to remote work. Still, both markets did see declines in their office valuations. Additionally, the researchers wrote, we calculate a reduction in value of the office stock between the end of 2019 and 2022 of $69.6 billion for New York City. $32.7 billion for San Francisco, and $5.1 billion for Charlotte. The authors wrote, For the remaining office markets, we combine office-specific lease revenue declines with valuation ratio changes for New York City to compute the value decline. Nationwide, we find a $506.3 billion decline in office values in the three-year period. The greatest declines in the property values 
by dollar losses over that three-year period were seen in New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Jose, and Boston, which the authors say could affect local governments that rely heavily on property taxes, triggering an urban doom loop. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, whoa, in the, that's a huge Klein box in the background. Well, sometimes they have to catch. Actually, truth is, Klein often sends very large boxes with lots of airbags with little things in them. Okay, yeah, I, I get that. I don't know why that is, but, uh, I, I, you know, I'm getting at least one a week out of these guys. <laughs> it's, it's always interesting stuff. So, yeah. Uh, Maybe I should go in the mattress business with those airbags. <laughs> <laughs> I picked four for today. Okay. The Klein Tools RT390 Circuit Analyzer. Now, this is a new twist on these things. You know, mm, it's got okay. the AFCI, GFCI protected electrical outlet testing and sure, all of that. Okay. But beyond the common wiring faults, you used to little three light guys, right? Yeah, yeah. This can report dual wiring faults, like when both open ground and open neutral wire connections happen. Okay. It, it shows the voltage at the outlet. It can show the percentage of the voltage drop when load testing at three levels, 12 amps, 15 amps, and 20 amps. Mm -hmm. If you're going to drop 20 amps on a 15 amp circuit, you're going to make some things yes. happen. So this is good to know. Yeah. When testing AFCI or GFCI outlets, it shows you the trip time and the trip current, which can be the only safe way to see if it's flawed or flaky okay. as All right. a protection device. Now, this piece, the, the RT390, is about $150. But, you know, for for people who are professionals or, or, or really are serious about things. OK, so I've got uh, I've got a number of client tools around here for for doing the electrical work that I'm doing in the house, replacing all the the electrical switches and with the smart switches. And uh, I'm going through and doing the outlets. And I will oh, tell yeah. you, that stuff is great to have on hand. You know, I, you know, I'm, it saved me once or twice from getting a nasty little jolt. Well, nasty little jolts can also come from the weather. Yeah. Especially as the temperature keeps riding and rising and riding, depending sure. on where you're working. And they sent me, this is really kind of Swiss army concept, a rechargeable clamping fan. Now this. Okay. You, this really helps you keep your cool when the weather doesn't. <laughs> uh, and nice. especially when there's no power outlets, Andy. Uh, this has a USB-C charger in it. Okay. Uh, runs, I mean, inside it's a lithium-ion battery. The fan housing guard can rotate 360 degrees. The fan yoke can swivel 360 degrees. So this can point in 3D from mm -hmm, where? Mm -hmm. Your choice. All on its base, there's a hang hole, a very macho mounting clamp quartet of macho magnets. Okay. The back of the fan has a carry handle, a four LED battery status telltale, and a high, low, off speed and power switch. So this thing goes wherever you need it with mm -hmm. the clamp yeah. or the magnet or the hook. And uh, keeping your cool, uh, having the ability to charge, it's about 100 bucks. 
Okay, uh, nice. The Client Tools Plier Wrench. Now, this is. Wait, <laughs> this, this is I, I'm, I'm sorry, is that a plier or a wrench? Yes. Ah, Look, I'm a big uh, fan okay. of Clever. I keep seeing new Clever tools from Client all the time. But this has a jaunty handle angle of an adjustable wrench. Okay, right? all right. All right, so, but those things have that screw mechanism to make the jaw open and close. Yeah. Uh, this has twin squeeze handle-like pliers, but instead of rocking the jaws to adjust their gap, it's a push lever that helps release it, and you can slide the jaw distance to where you want it. Okay. Then it locks in a position. The lower jaw, well, you can take that one off and reverse it to go from being straight, like if you're dealing with a hex nut that you're opening, or... Yeah. Having a curve with uh, jagged uh, inside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So right. If you're working on a pipe or a conduit, uh, so you can engage nuts or or the serrate is good to use like gripping pliers and you know spikes or rods or whatever. The overall length a little more than ten inches, so there's less stress on your wrist. Okay. You get some leverage handled, there. Yeah. Yeah. More load handled by your large lower arm muscles. It's about yeah. fifty bucks. Klein okay. Tools plier wrench, and Number four for today, Tools okay. safety goggles. Now, <laughs> yes, go on. I love the engineering in these goggles. They seal comfortably against your face, but they have small vents you can open and close above each eye. They have a mm -hmm. clear and non-distorting faceplate. And if you wear glasses, they'll fit inside. Okay. Scratch resistant, non-slip, anti-fog, and rated to handle high velocity impact. About 30 bucks, client tools, okay. safety goggles. And, and I will tell you, I, I will tell you that safety goggles are, are really important. People, you know, if, if there was anything that I took out of that, I mean, I love all of the client tools items, but I'll tell you, our vision, our eyes are very important in our lives and we, we don't really think about it. And uh, if, if there was any big mistake that people make in the wood shop, in, uh, in in working around the house, it's not wearing eye protection. That is so true. That is so true. And and they're just blind to the need for it. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that is. <laughs> <laughs> this is Benjamin Rockwell, the guy over there with the puns and great jokes. Uh, that's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Free Alternative Video Conference Services Other Than Zoom. Thursday, June the 8th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June the 9th, meeting time is 7 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Address is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. 
And for more information, their phone number is 347-278-7320. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday. They meet on Thursday, July the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.